Hinesverch knocks it in. Neil Cohen clears it. Duran heads it away with 35 seconds left. There will be some stunned folks around the nation when they see this score, but we're not surprised, are we? Not at all. On the far side, ball is shot. Cohen blocks Herculey into the crowd. Kick in Baltimore. 23 seconds left. Goodness gracious. Left side in the corner. Back to the point. Shot in, into the crowd. St. Louis goal kick. 17 seconds left, folks. This one is history. Yes, sir. You gotta love these guys. This is not an expensive European soccer team. These are homegrown kids. Billy Phillips is an American in goal. Done an outstanding job tonight. 10 seconds left. Baltimore, one more rush. I don't think they can score four in seven seconds. Shot in, left corner, three seconds, two, around the goal mouth, and it's over. The steamers have come into the Civic Center in Baltimore in front of a sold-out crowd of better than 11,600, and they have hammered Baltimore by a score of 7-3. to three. One, What a performance tonight. Bob Keough will head down to the floor now for our Star of the Game show coming up a little later on radio. But I'll tell you, folks, you have got a team to be proud of here tonight. They came in here, led it by a score of 2-1. Baltimore took the 3-2 lead. Don Ebert tied it up on the power play. And maybe the turning point of the game, Jeff Cacciatore's second goal of the playoffs, unassisted into the empty net when Baltimore took a chance and pulled their goalie for the sixth attacker with only seconds left in the first half of play. Cacciatore took it away from the magician Stan Stamikovic with a little magic of his own and then took it down the floor into the empty net. The Steamers had the 4-3 lead at the half, added two in the third quarter and the icing on the cake with only seconds left for a 7-3 victory. We'll be back with more from Baltimore in a moment. St. Louis wins it by four and this is St. Louis Steamers playoff soccer. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, how's it going everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon and this of course is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. And yes, make no mistake, that voice that you hear the voice that you just heard uh, was uh, a very familiar one, one to uh, known very well uh, to baseball fans all across the country, especially those in the Washington, D.C. area. His name is Bob Carpenter. He is the uh, current uh, television voice of the Washington Nationals Major League Baseball franchise, has been for quite some time. Uh, but uh, as you'll hear in our conversation with Bob Carpenter in a couple of seconds, uh, a, uh, a lifelong uh, journey of uh, very interesting stops uh, in and around professional and collegiate sports. And of course, we always uh, dig real deep to find the excuses to talk to uh, a very famous and uh, enjoyable personality such as Bob. And uh, we, of course, uh, had the excuse to do so uh, from some of his earliest days. And he was uh, kind enough to uh, allow us to drag us back, drag him back into uh, some of his um, beginning uh, journeys uh, in pro sports broadcasting. And what you just heard was a clip uh, from one of those stops uh, in the old major indoor soccer league and the St. Louis Steamers in particular, uh, where he was uh, for many years uh, the voice 
uh, of the steamers. Uh, we talked uh, earlier to J.P. Della Camera. He was a voice for a little while, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll get uh, to talk to Joel Myers uh, in another conversation, who was uh, the voice for the steamers for a season as well. Uh, but perhaps some of the more memorable moments of uh, steamers history uh, was called by our uh, guest this week, Bob Carpenter. And that was from uh, the uh, first game of the MISL finals uh, for the 1983-84 season that was played on, geez, I thought say it was May 27th, 1984. And that game was live from the uh, Baltimore Civic Center. And uh, as you heard, the uh, sort of final seconds of that first game uh, where the Steamers defeated the Baltimore Blast uh, going away 7-3 to three, and uh, was uh, out of the shoot, shall we say, uh, well on its way to what uh, they hoped was going to be uh, their first ever major indoor soccer league uh, championship. But uh, alas, uh, I didn't mean to break it to you, but I'll do it gently. Uh, the uh, rest of the series did not go St. Louis's way. As a matter of fact, Baltimore uh, wound up winning uh, the next game at home a couple of days later, 5-3, to three, and uh, then uh, proceeded to go to uh, St. Louis for uh, two more games. Baltimore won both of those, uh, the latter of which on June 6th, 1984. Stan Stamenkovic uh, scored uh, in overtime uh, to send Baltimore back to the Civic Center, where on June 8th, uh, they closed the deal and uh, defeated St. Louis 10-3, to uh, winning the MISL Championship Series uh, for the 1983-84 season, four games uh, to one. However, uh, we are not going to wallow in uh, how close the Steamers got. There was no question uh, that the Steamers were a uh, an amazing franchise in the Major Indoor Soccer League. And Bob Carpenter was there to call a whole bunch of games uh, for it, as well as, as we'll get into in our chat in a couple of seconds here, uh, his uh, his real first breakthrough uh, in the pro ranks with the Tulsa Roughnecks of the North American Soccer League uh, outdoor version, a little bit of indoor as well. Uh, and uh, we'll get into all of that, the whole story of how he uh, how Bob stumbled into uh, the NASL, getting his first real pro uh, broadcasting job uh, and uh, how that uh, sort of netted uh, into uh, MISL work with the steamers and uh, we get into things like Bud Sports, the Anheuser-Busch uh, sports production uh, uh, team out of St. Louis and uh, ESPN and a whole bunch of things uh, that uh, ultimately led to uh, a, a further and long standing career uh, in baseball uh, across uh, uh, places like ESPN and uh, and now, of course, with the uh, Washington Naturals, but lots of interesting stops along the way. Uh, but we're going to uh, delve into some of those earliest stops uh, with our guest, Bob Carpenter, coming up in just a couple of seconds. Uh, a fun and enjoyable chat, and uh, you will enjoy it, hopefully, just as much as I did uh, as we get going. I want to uh, say hello to a couple of our sponsors, of course, and encourage you to uh, check them out and uh, maybe give them, a, give them a purchase or two, why don't you? And we got a couple of codes for you, too. Uh, to do so. And uh, the first that we want to call out is uh, our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. And it's uh, OldSchoolShirts.com. And the promo code there is Good Seats. You're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. And you're going to find some great uh, high quality logoed uh, T-shirts, uh, one of which, of course, is featuring the St. Louis Steamers, a really uh, nice uh, sort of distressed looking shirt. Uh, I think it's got more of the sort of modern logo uh, attached to it, but uh, it's a great way to remember uh, the St. Louis uh, Steamers franchise is 100% cotton. It's uh, beautifully crafted and uh, one of uh, zillions of uh, great designs and uh, and logos, uh, not only of teams and leagues, 
uh, formerly with us or previously incarnated, but, you know, old radio stations and and uh, shopping malls and uh, all kinds of amusement parks, all kinds of other fun uh, music venues, uh, all kinds of stuff uh, that uh, you just may have forgotten. Uh, and uh, the, our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com uh, are there to uh, help you remember fondly uh, and uh, hopefully wear proudly uh, in T-shirt form. OldSchoolShirts.com. Remember, use the promo code GOODSEATS and you will receive courtesy of us, uh, 10% off all of your purchases. And we thank our friends, uh, PF Wilson, uh, and his crew in uh, beautiful downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, for sponsoring our little show here. And, uh, we, uh, we thank them tremendously. And we thank you for giving them a try again, oldschoolshirts.com promo code, good seats. All right. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's actually uh, get right into the conversation. Shall we? Let's waste no more time. And uh, here's a chat that uh, we had with uh, our new friend, Bob Carpenter. He, the voice of Major League Baseball's Washington Nationals, about some of his early stops in his uh, illustrious uh, broadcasting career. And uh, here's our chat we had just a couple of weeks ago. You know, uh, this little show, in all its silliness, uh, somehow uh, over the last year and a half as a sort of personal passion project has... uh, uh, oddly uh, gained traction uh, with people for whatever reasons uh, who have their own sort of collective memories about teams and leagues and uh, those kinds of things uh, defunct or otherwise uh, domiciled um, in their collective uh, brains and their memories. Uh, I think some of it's childhood uh, and some issues that haven't been resolved with all of us, but uh, I, I can't uh, speak to why people listen, but um, uh, it seems to be growing. And um, sadly, you've cool. been ensnared in my net. Uh <laughs> in uh, some of your early doings. Now, to the extent that you want to remember them, let's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of tiptoe through them. But um, before uh, we kind of get to where you are today and your, obviously your prolific uh, baseball coverage, um, uh, your, t- your time with the Nationals, et cetera, um, I, I want to maybe sort of regale our audience a bit with perhaps some of the earliest days to how you got to where you are today and how they know you. And uh, interestingly, a lot of that actually kind of went through the world of soccer, but maybe even before we get there, um, I don't know, maybe uh, our out-of-Washington-D.C. Uh, listeners might uh, enjoy a bit of some of how you even got into this crazy business of sports broadcasting in the first place, if you don't mind. Well, I, I always wanted to uh, <clears throat> to be a sportscaster. I think when I was in high school, I did a lot of sports writing for our little in-house newspaper and uh, you know, always interested in sports. Grew up in St. Louis, which obviously is a great baseball town, but uh, maybe not as much as it used to be, but when I was growing up, St. Louis was an unbelievable soccer town because under the uh, great coaching of Harry Keogh and some of the other gentlemen who came along, St. Louis University was a perennial NCAA soccer powerhouse winning national championships on a very regular basis. So uh, St. Louis was also uh, a city made up of uh, ethnic neighborhoods and uh, I grew up right on the edge of the hill, best known as where Yogi Berra and uh, Joe Garagiola grew up. I grew up about six blocks away from uh, Elizabeth Avenue where they did in South St. Louis. There were three parishes that uh, comprised the hill area. And, uh, you know, we grew up playing soccer. I mean, I, I remember playing in first grade. I remember it was a winter sport for us. We froze our rear ends off playing uh soccer in the late fall and into the winter before basketball started 
And so um, I had a lot of roots in soccer. Didn't know that much about soccer internationally or anything like that. But I was in, always interested in the sport, and uh, it was really cool because uh, a kid that lived in my neighborhood, Vinny Lang, his father, Leo, played on the U.S. Olympic team, I think back in the 50s. So that was kind of a big deal for us, and uh, you know that's kind of how I uh, had some roots in soccer. And I played with some a couple of kids who went on to play professionally, uh, most notably uh, a, a young man that was uh, a year younger than me in elementary school. Uh, we played together uh, several years, and it was John Strumlaw. And John would later go on to play for the St. Louis Steamers of the Major Under Soccer League and the St. Louis Stars of the old NASL. So, you know, uh, a, a lot of soccer in my background. We played through high school, you know, amateur soccer. Uh, and then uh, when I went away to school, it was kind of unusual, uh, Tim, because uh, I went to UMKC to the start of my junior year to study broadcasting. Well, UMKC, which is the University of Missouri in Kansas City, was mainly a commuter school. It only had one dorm, and I was transferring up there over the Christmas holidays. I couldn't get in the dorm. They had no room. Right across the street was an NAIA school, a private Catholic school called Rockhurst College, which I think is now called Rockhurst University. And they had a really good soccer team. They had plenty of room in the dorms, and a lot of the UMKC kids who came in from out of town ended up living in the dorms uh, over at Rockhurst, right across Troost Avenue from UMKC. So I was you know, living in one, at one school, going to another, but they were right across the street from each other. And uh, they had a little campus radio station. Uh, I got on the air as a disc jockey. And then as I kind of got into my latter part of my junior year and into my senior year, I, I was more interested in broadcasting sports, and they weren't really doing that. So I got the permission of the manager, the GM of the station, who was a faculty member, to uh, string a cable out to the bleachers in the spring, and we did the baseball games. Uh, we, we, we had a cable over in the basketball arena. We did some Rockhurst basketball games. And during the fall, we, we took that same cable and strung it across the ba- literally across left field of the baseball field and up into the bleachers of the soccer field, which was right on the third baseline of the, uh, the baseball stadium if indeed you would even bother to call it a stadium so i would sit up there with a clipboard a microphone a little you know amplifier box and uh just kind of announce the games i'd get the rosters of the team that was visiting i'd get the rockers roster got to know the coach and everything and then in my senior year they went to the naia playoffs down in north carolina we did those games. Uh, we had a blast following the team. And that's really when I kind of started cutting my teeth on uh, actually doing play-by-play. None of it was live on the air except when the team was at home. When we were on the road, I'd take a big old Pioneer reel-to-reel tape recorder with me. thing weighed about 30 pounds or more. And we'd take it along there, put it up on the bleachers, hope it didn't rain, and uh, do those soccer games from up on the bleachers, wherever we might be. Then we'd bring them back, and we'd play them back on Sunday evening during dinner hour while the whole school was in the cafeteria eating because Rockers probably only had about 1,200 kids in school at that time. So that's kind of how I got started in soccer. But I always wanted to be a baseball announcer. I actually came to Tulsa 
in the spring of 1976 to be the number two announcer, no travel, home games only, and I did. I had a sales job selling radio advertising during the day for the legendary owner of the Tulsa Oilers, A. Ray Smith. Uh, that was at that time the Cardinals AAA ball club. And uh, that was the team that moved out of Tulsa because the stadium was falling down. They actually, this is crazy, absolutely crazy. They went to New Orleans for two years and played in the Superdome as the New Orleans Pelicans of the American Association. That team eventually moved to Springfield, Illinois, and finally found its way to Louisville, Kentucky, where it is to this day. And they were, st- they were still a far- Cardinal Farm Club. And that's the team that set all the attendance records playing on the old fairgrounds there in Louisville. Sure. So, uh, you know, that was kind of the start of my baseball career. 1978, the Tulsa Roughnecks came to town. I know I was the only guy in Oklahoma who knew how to announce a soccer game because when the baseball team left town, A. Ray offered me less money to go to New Orleans than I was already making selling advertising in Tulsa. So I decided not to go with the baseball team, stayed around, uh, did high school sports, football, basketball, you name it, whatever I could get my hands on. And the funny thing about that is about six months after I decided to stay in Tulsa, I met the girl who I married almost 40 years ago. So if I had left with the team and gone on to New Orleans, you know, God knows how different my life would have been. But uh, that's pretty much how I got started in baseball and, of course, soccer when the Tulsa Roughnecks got here. Well, all right. So so let's uh, let's unpack the uh, the Tulsa Roughnecks thing first, because uh, I think a lot of people uh, of a certain generation, especially those who are big NASL and then later MISL fans, uh, probably got to know your voice best uh, from uh, some of those games as well as some of the national uh, spillover, I guess, in some of those environments. Mm-hmm. How did, so how did you discover and how did you sort of get yourself in a position uh, to uh, get into the, the Roughnecks conversation? Was it more you finding it or it finding you? or How did it all come about, the Roughnecks gig? I think it was a combination of two things because uh, I was selling advertising, as I said, not really what I wanted to do. I was doing okay. People told me I was pretty good at it, but I was selling for a station that had – you know, very, very low ratings. And it was just, it was a day-to-day struggle. I really got my joy from doing those high school games on Friday nights and on the weekends, you know, football, basketball, as I mentioned, it's kind of funny. Uh, there's a little suburb of Tulsa called Sepulpa, Oklahoma. It's just about 10 miles west of where my house is right now, just outside of town. They had a little radio station called KXOJ and a guy named Mike Stevens uh, was the guy who ran the station and owned the station, ran it. And it was funny because he was my color man, but all he did was read commercials. He didn't provide any analysis at all. <clears throat> so I'd go do a Sepulpa High School football game on Friday night for $25. That was my talent fee. And uh, he would sit there and not do anything while I was doing play-by-play. I was pretty much going solo with whatever notes I could get from you know, both coaches. And then uh, during basketball season, at 5.30, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd leave work early about 4.00. 4 o'clock, 4.30, drive over to Sepulpa. The girls' game was at 5.30. The boys' game was at uh, 7. And I'd do two games on Friday night. I'd get $35 for doing those two games. And, uh, you know, we'd go to the state playoffs. I I remember one year we went down to Oklahoma City and did the state playoffs. And a lot of the little towns didn't have radio stations that carried the game. Well, they had radio stations, but they didn't have any announcers. So Mike would sell those games to these little towns and I remember one a uh, couple times in one day he and I would do eight basketball games in a row 
working off the program names and numbers and just doing those games. So, you know, that's what I really got interested in play-by-play. And that's why when the Roughnecks came to town, I basically walked into uh, Noel Lemon's office. He was the new GM. Uh, That team had come from Hawaii. They were Team Hawaii out there, and they transferred to Tulsa for some reason. (laughs) They found local ownership uh, with Tom Keeter, who is the owner of a big uh, bakery here called Rainbow Bread. I guess they were the Tulsa version of Wonder Bread. And uh, he was the owner. Noel Lemon was the GM. And I just walked into their offices in February of 1978, and said, I know how to broadcast soccer. I know how to sell advertising. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll go line the field or cut the grass if you want me to. Well, that wasn't necessary because Skelly Stadium, where T- University of Tulsa played, had artificial turf. But basically, um, Tim, I walked into their office, waited, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes to get in to see Noel. He called Tom Keeter in while I was in there, and I walked out of there an hour later with a job which I was very happy to leave my uh, radio job selling advertising. So pretty soon, I'm the first voice, radio and TV, of the Tulsa Roughnecks. Uh, the games are on the biggest radio station in town, KRMG, which was one of the, the big-time sports stations in Oklahoma. We were on the local ABC affiliate. Kind of unusual, we did radio for the home games and TV for the road games. And I was actually the analyst on TV with Chris Lincoln, who was the sports director, at uh, KTUL Channel 8. So that's how it all got started with my basically, you know, uh, getting squatting rights in their office until somebody would talk to me. And it was, it was funny because I, re- I literally did walk out of there with a job and I even got a slight raise uh, from what I was making. So it was interesting because I was doing the games, I was doing the program, uh, uh, you know, helping our PR guy uh, do Kick Magazine which was our program that came out for every game. I was driving players around to all the little places around northeastern Oklahoma. We had a big soccer presence here among kids with the Green Country Soccer Association. This corner of Oklahoma is called Green Country. It's really green. We have a lot of lakes. It's, just, it's a beautiful part of Oklahoma, not the Dust Bowl that most people think of when they think about our state. But um, we traveled around to all those little towns. We did clinics. We did appearances. Uh, Charlie Mitchell, a hard-nosed defender, one of my dearest friends ever uh, over the years. He came with the team from Hawaii. He was the captain of the team. He would later become the coach of the Roughnecks after he retired. Charlie and I basically wandered northeastern Oklahoma and uh, anywhere we could find a school that had kids who were playing soccer. Uh, Charlie would go do clinics. I'd put on a soccer uniform because I had played as a kid, you know, and I'd kick the ball back and forth to him. He would show off his soccer skills. Some of the other players did that as well. And that's really how the whole thing got started here in uh, 1978. I still remember the first game, the Detroit Express, who played in the Silver Dome up in Pontiac, Michigan. They came here uh, for our first game uh, of the season, and I think we drew maybe – 4,500 or 5,000 people. Uh, the Roughnecks lost 2-1. to one. Our only goal was scored by a future star of our team, Billy Kasky, uh, who came over with Victor Moreland from the Glen Torren Football Club in uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, they were Belfast kids, rough-and-tumble Irish kids who uh, got a chance to come over here and play. Uh, they were the two most popular players with Charlie. Uh, Mitchell, those three were our most popular players. And, uh, you know, Tim, that's how the whole thing got started back in 1978, and uh, it kind of went from there. 
So how 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 quote unquote major league was all this experience? I mean the NASL. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean I'm sure it yeah. was sort of sort of a little bit of both, right? I mean obviously the NASL was sort of a white hot comet, especially around that time, but also as wasn't necessarily you know the established major league baseball presence that you were probably still you know uh, yeah. eyeing you know for your future. Well, you know I remember we marketed ourselves as Oklahoma's only major league sport, which in a way was true. Tulsa and Oklahoma City had minor league hockey. They both had minor league baseball, uh, you know, and uh, obviously Oklahoma football, Oklahoma State football, Tulsa football, Arkansas, University of Arkansas is only two hours away. So, you know, those were the main things around here. So it took a while for soccer uh, to make those inroads. And, you know, gradually the crowd started getting bigger. Uh, You know, we were the smallest city in the league, you know, we were smart, smaller than Portland, Oregon, and certainly smaller than Seattle and uh, San Diego, you know, the Sounders in Seattle, the San Diego Sockers, the San Jose Earthquakes, the Chicago Sting, the Dallas Tornado, uh, the St. Louis Stars had moved to Anaheim and had, had become the California surf of all things. You know, we had the Cosmos in New York and all that, and of course the Minnesota Kicks, they weren't really that close to us. Uh, Dallas was our number one rival, and Al Miller, who had won an NASL championship with Philadelphia, he was the coach down in Dallas. Tulsa and Dallas got a pretty good uh, rivalry going because one of the other guys who owned the Roughnecks was H. Ward Lay of Lay's Potato Chip fame, and he was based in Dallas. So the Tulsa-Dallas thing got to be a pretty good rivalry in the old NASL, we played at Skelly Stadium at the University of Tulsa, and they played at Ownby Field at SMU before they moved eventually to Texas Stadium where the Cowboys played uh, out there in Irving. So, uh, you know, those were fun days, but we were always the underdog. Noel Lemon was a fiery uh, Irishman himself from Northern Ireland. He loved getting his name and the name of the team, of course, in the newspapers here. Uh, we had two newspapers here at that time. The Tulsa World was the morning paper. Tulsa Tribune was the afternoon paper. The Tribune went away, I don't know, 25 years ago maybe. But, uh, you know, Noel was always trying to cook up some controversy. You know, it was always us against them. Uh, you know, that's the way we kind of portrayed the Roughnecks as the little guys in the league from the smallest market because Tampa Bay, the Rowdies were drawing a lot of people. The Atlanta Chiefs were doing okay. The Cosmos, all these other teams. And uh, it became kind of a fun thing. And the Roughnecks uh, probably were a real pain in the butt to uh, Phil Woosnam and the NASL office from time to time because it seemed like there was always some kind of controversy involving Tulsa. If we lost a game, you know, Noel would chase the referees off the field at Skelly Stadium, you know, stuff that GMs really shouldn't be doing. And, uh, and I'm working in the front office. I'm doing the games. I'm learning a lot about the business of soccer. And I learned a lot uh, about how not to do things watching Noel work. You know, he was a tough boss. He was tough on me, uh, but there were times when he was very charming, and I felt like he was my best friend in the world. And then we'd lose a game on Saturday night, and then he'd be my worst enemy when I, you know, got back to the office on Monday morning. It was a real roller coaster ride, Tim. And those were the early days. But here's something I will never forget. I think it was our second game of the, maybe our third game of the season. We lost to Detroit, as I told you, and then I, uh, the second team to come in was, uh, I think they were called the Toronto Metros at that time. This is before they were the Toronto Blizzard, 
who Tulsa would later play in the Soccer Bowl in 1983 out in Vancouver and win that Soccer Bowl. Uh, they came in. I think Tulsa beat them two to nothing or two to one. We had about 10,000 fans show up, and all of a sudden, some people were starting to take notice. Well, the next week, we go to Giant Stadium in the Meadowlands to play the Cosmos, and the Roughnecks battle them to a scoreless tie for about 87 or 88 minutes. And in the closing minute and a half or so of the game, the, the Cosmos get a free kick right outside the penalty area, so the Roughnecks set up the wall. And, and I'm, I'm assuming it was Giorgio Quinalia who took the kick. It, it might have been him or Franz Beckenbauer. I think maybe it was Beckenbauer, the great German, who took the free kick. One of the guys, a rookie in our wall, flinched. The ball went right through his legs, and our goalkeeper was screened, and uh, Colin Bolton was our goalkeeper. He came over from England. He couldn't see the ball. It went in the net. There were 78,000 people in the Meadowlands that day, and the Cosmos beat Tulsa one to nothing. So here comes the David Goliath thing again. The, the Roughnecks lose only one nothing in the last minute and a half to the mighty Cosmos. And then we kind of went on from there, and Tulsa started uh, becoming a better soccer city as we got through that 78 season before we were finally eliminated, made the playoffs, were eliminated up at uh, Old Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota, when uh, the Minnesota Kicks beat us 2-1, to one, I think it was, and we had two goals disallowed on offsides calls. And you can imagine uh, how the Tulsa people reacted to that because we were David trying to beat Goliath again, and uh, that didn't work out. That's how our first season ended, and Tulsa kind of became a pretty good soccer city after that. Well, I, was in, I was actually in that crowd of that Giant Stadium game, so uh, I, I, I think I remember that goal, as a matter of fact, too. I don't want to call him out because he was an outstanding player. Uh, but, you know, I, I love thinking about these kids, these American kids who came and played, because you had to have at least two Americans on the field at all times during that time. And I think he was from Hartwick College, which was either in New Jersey or uh, upstate New York. His name was Billy Gazonis. And Billy, he was a fun kid. I, I really enjoyed Billy. He won the Herman Award, which is soccer's Heisman, of course, and, and the Roughnecks had drafted him, and he was a rookie. And he and the kid next to him, I can't remember who the other player was next to him, had a little flinch, and then the ball got through the wall and, and beat our goalkeeper. But, uh, you know, Billy went on to have a really good couple of years with the Roughnecks. And, uh, you know, those American kids, uh, Tim, had to be tough because they were playing with older, more established professional guys, uh, most of our team was from England or Ireland. Charlie Mitchell was from Scotland. Uh, and then, of course, we had a couple of uh, uh, Yugoslavians uh, that came and played with us. Stojan Nikolic, who was a really hard-nosed defender. Ninoslav Zets, who was a little bitty guy who played the wing, who was just a magician with the ball. And uh, that was the makeup of our team with a couple of Americans uh, sprinkled in here and there. I think there was a, a kid named Jimmy McCune, who was uh, from Ryder College. Uh, Billy Sauter, who is a Philadelphia kid, and I, I can't remember where he went to school, but uh, th these were kids who uh, had to be pretty tough to survive in those days back in the NASL. So uh, what are you seeing then around sort of the, the rest of the league, and uh, is it opening your purview? Obviously, you're getting uh, smarter about sort of the uh, both sides of the mic, shall we say. Uh, you're, obviously, <laughs> you're obviously in quote-unquote big league sports, right, especially in your your uh, your town of quote unquote of, of Tulsa, right? I mean, you're, you it's almost like you've got a nice little purview from a smaller perch, if you will, to 
sort of bigger, uh, bigger things and a, and a, and a, a broader landscape. I'm assuming you're getting yeah. some tapes out there too, and some 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 notice from folks either elsewhere in the league or uh, in other sports too. No. Well, and then and the other thing was, you know, with Channel Eight here, we also had a local cable system. Uh, it's called it's it's part of the Cox Cable family now. But back back then it was simply called Tulsa Cable, and they used to like to carry local sports too. And I some of our soccer games, after they weren't on Channel Eight anymore, were on Tulsa Cable. And uh, I, I remember going around the league and talking to some of the other PR guys. Paul Writings Jr. was with the Tornado down in Dallas. Uh, Tom Meredith was with the Philadelphia team, and I, I would talk to these guys. And Jim Trecker. Uh, was the guy in the league office up in New York who kind of oversaw all the PR and all the you know local PR guys would keep in touch with him, and uh, you know kind of uh, forged a personal relationship with those guys because I wanted to know what they were doing that I could help make our situation better. I think we had a big advantage, uh, Tim, actually being in a smaller market. Uh, Tulsa right now is a city of about 450,000 maybe, 400,000, somewhere in that area. Uh, we have some big suburbs around. And, uh, you know, our, our total metropolitan area is probably, I don't know, 700,000, 650, something like that. And it was easier for us to get on TV and on radio because soccer here was a big deal. You know, we had double-A baseball here in the, in the summer, and at that time, the Tulsa Drillers, who uh, came in here uh, via the Texas Rangers, uh, they were the team that came in here after the Tulsa Oilers left. And so we had double-A baseball, but, you know, this so-called uh, Major League Sport, I think we did a pretty good job of involving the Green Country Soccer Association uh, with the clinics and got the kids to this. You know, we, we offered all kind of crazy discounts and freebies to get kids to drag their parents to the soccer game. And then we found out that some of the parents – you know, most of all, we're football fans because, hey, we're in Oklahoma. This is this is primo high school and college, you know, football country here. And then gradually, I think we won over some of the adults to the game of soccer. So that's kind of how that whole thing happened. But I'd go around the league and talk to these guys, uh, and and they were they'd always they were like, how how in the world do you guys get your games on the local ABC affiliate? on TV, and how did you get this deal with the biggest radio station in town? Well, that was a byproduct of us being in a mid-sized market as opposed to Philly or New York or Dallas or Chicago, you know, where they are, most of those teams were on these obscure little radio stations, and some of them couldn't even get their games on television. There wasn't much of a national package of games, I don't think, until about 1979 or 1980. So uh, we really had an advantage here of how we were able to market our team compared to some of those other teams who had more people from whom to draw than we did. And, and unwittingly giving you probably some more skills and some more um, uh, uh, background and, and depth in terms of your, your overall resume, so to speak, right? Yeah. Well, and then eventually, and, and I, I, you know, ESPN signed on the air in the winter of 1979 if I remember correctly, you know, some, sometime around this time of the year. So if you think about that, that's 40 years ago. Because when I came out of college from UMKC as a December 1975 graduate, ESPN was still about four years away from even being a blip on anybody's screen. Uh, you know, when I came out of school, uh, my first job was a radio news job in tiny Jonesboro, Arkansas, uh, hour from Memphis where Arkansas State University is and before I actually was able to make my way over to 
Tulsa to do some baseball, the minor league games that I talked about earlier. And, um, you know, opportunities were limited. You either went to a small town and worked if you had a broadcasting degree, or if you decided, if I would have decided to stay in Kansas City, I probably would have been pulling cable or pouring coffee or working in a mail room at one of the local TV stations and struggling to get on the air. So, you know, I, I got out of town and started doing all kind of different things I could do. So um, somebody at ESPN noticed me doing soccer and I started getting some phone calls from them. And then, um, you know, I did a few indoor games uh, in between seasons because they had an indoor league. Uh, the following year, they called me to do some outdoor soccer games and uh, I remember in 1982 when I got fired by the local NBC, uh, ABC affiliate here, I was actually their sports director when Chris Lincoln uh, left to take on some other opportunities. Um, one day after I got fired, Ellen Beckwith, a dear friend of mine who was the talent coordinator at ESPN, and called and said, hey, can you come up here and spend about a week? Bob Lee is going to be our play-by-play guy. We want you to be our analyst, and you guys are going to sit in the studio for a week and a half or so and voice over the World Cup soccer games coming in from Spain. So, you know, I'm like, hey, I'll go stay at the Holiday Inn in Bristol, Connecticut for a week and a half to get on ESPN. And uh, that's what Bobby and I did. Bob did the play-by-play. I was actually his analyst. There just weren't that many soccer announcers around uh, at that time. You know, Seamus Mallon would become a great analyst with the Cosmos and eventually ESPN. I actually worked with Seamus uh, during the 94 World Cup when it came here. And Bob Lee, I think, did nine or ten games. And I did ten games in that World Cup uh, with some other guys sprinkled in. I think Randy Hahn from the San Diego Soccers did some games. Uh, Roger Twybell did the ABC games that involved Team USA, which we never got to do on the ESPN games. So somebody at you at, uh, at ESPN, uh, noticed me. And then I got a call from Jim Drake, who to this day is a great friend of mine and probably had as much influence on my network career as anybody. And he said, Bobby, we want to come, uh, come on up to New York. I want you to meet Kate Kopolovitz who runs USA network. We want you to do some things. Al Trotwig was doing some stuff for them. And then Al, departed to go to CBS, and all of a sudden I was doing some national soccer games on USA Network indoor and outdoor as well. So, uh, you know, in those early days, soccer was really big, even some college games for ESPN. I remember watching ESPN in the middle of the afternoon. They'd have a game from Seattle with Seattle Pacific University on there, you know, playing somebody else from the West Coast. So soccer... Uh, while it was still in its infancy professionally in this country, it did become a vehicle of opportunity for me and some other guys whose names I mentioned. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and then later when I was doing the St. Louis Steamers MISO games, uh, whenever I'd have a conflict, Anheuser-Busch would call John Paul Della Camera uh, to come in and, and do some games that I couldn't. I think JP was doing the Pittsburgh Spirit indoor games, and now his resume for the last 30 years has probably been the best of any American soccer announcer, or at least somebody doing soccer in America who doesn't have a British accent. And, 
you know, uh, JP became a great soccer announcer while I kind of wandered off into baseball and other things. So <laughs> those early days were fun. They were days of opportunity. There were a lot of hurdles that we had to jump over here and there. But uh, I look back on that time in my career with a lot of fondness back in the late 70s and the early 80s. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you wandered off, Bob, but, uh, uh, you know, I, but the, uh, I, so, you know, we did have a conversation. I wandered off from soccer. I'll put it that way. <laughs> OK, fair enough. Uh, some would argue greener pastures. We had JP on a couple of months ago, and uh, I think he he directly uh, attributes his uh, his opportunity with the Steamers as uh, as sort of a pivotal in his uh, in his career. So uh, yeah, you know, well, and we had uh, yeah, and you know that was my hometown, and Anheuser Busch brought me back, uh, uh, you know, to do the Steamers. I, I think I started did the Steamers. I think from maybe. I don't want uh, 81 to 84, something like that. And then I got some college basketball opportunities and a little bit more baseball here and there. Uh, but, you know, we didn't call him JP. He was just John Paul back then. But, I mean, he's, he's just done fantastic, and I, I love it. I, I got to be honest. I'm being, I'm being provincial here. I'm being, um, you know, a little uh, American selfish here. Uh, but I always enjoy it when I turn on a game and JP's doing it. And uh, it, it's not somebody they brought over from the other side of the pond uh, to do American soccer. There's just something about our guys doing soccer and doing it well. And some didn't do it very well, but I, 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 was, I would hope that I did it pretty well because I did get some opportunities. But JP, you know, he's become the guy over the years. And I'm so happy that he has forged uh, in that game the, the career that he has. Uh, but I, I tell you what, the whole, um, the whole St. Louis thing, Tim, is interesting. Because Anheuser-Busch had a president. His name was Denny Long. Denny Long loved soccer. And because of that, that led to Anheuser-Busch being a big sponsor in the early days of the NASL. You know, you'd see Budweiser banners in most of the NASL stadiums. They sponsored indoor soccer. And it was kind of interesting because St. Louis never had, other than the steamers, when they were drawing 18000 a game to the St. Louis Arena for indoor, outdoor St. Louis just never had a great professional soccer tradition. They didn't have a, a good field. They didn't have a great stadium in which to play. You know, they tried playing in Bush Stadium where the Cardinals and the football Cardinals played before they left for Arizona. But, you know, they drew a couple of 20,000 crowds here and there. Uh, but it was Denny Long spearheading the whole thing at Anheuser-Busch that I think had a lot to do with the success of soccer in America. And uh, we also had a sponsor here in Tulsa. Uh, you know, Tulsa used to be called the oil capital of the world because so many oil companies were based here. And one of those was Getty Oil out of New York. They had a major presence here. They had a refinery here, and they were a big sponsor of Roughneck Soccer along with Anheuser-Busch and some of the others that were there. But, but I really think on a national basis, the NASL would never have made much headway and probably wouldn't have survived as long as it did without the support of Getty Oil. But, but a far and away number one was Anheuser-Busch uh, because of what Denny Long did for the sport coming out of the brewery in St. Louis. That's very interesting, and uh, and and actually, ironically, Getty obviously the the original money behind the original ESPN as well. Exactly. I I don't have inside information on what those two had to do with each other, but I do know without Getty Oil and uh, and Anheuser Busch, uh, soccer would have had no chance in a town like Tulsa, and and I would think in in other places around the country as well.
All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you while we do so that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles. Uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, there was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball, but obviously the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball. And it remains to this day, uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country. Of course, you can also, if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, great legendary years at club play as well as national team play uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL with uh, the book called NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Crapeau and narrated by Marlon May. That, too, uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate your doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. I also think it's interesting, too, that St. Louis, right, has uh, even still in today's Major League Soccer, which I know is it's on their radar. They're they're still in, always in the mix and there's always seems to be ownership issues or field issues and stuff. I mean, you know, St. Louis is arguably one of the small handful of uh, true uh, cradles of soccer in this country, largely, you know, born from ethnic and first generation yeah. uh, immigrants and all that. And 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 still St. Louis, you know, it doesn't have sort of the uh, the crown jewel of of top-tier professional soccer in this country, which is kind of, kind of amazing. Yeah, there's no doubt about the fact that St. Louis is the greatest soccer city in America that does not have a front-line major league professional team. It's one of the great mysteries to me. I know the stadium thing has been an issue, continues to be so, and I, I've seen the drawings online for five years of this wonderful-looking soccer stadium that they want to build just west of Union Station, in St. Louis, Union Station's the old train station that's on the fringe of downtown. It looks fantastic, but for some reason, it just hasn't gone in St. Louis. And to me, that's a big mystery. 
All right. Uh, I just one last thing while we're talking about St. Louis is, I, it, can you just give us a little bit of a, of a feeling, I guess, of what this sort of steamers thing was like? Because indoor soccer, <laughs> ironically, right? You know, he, yeah. He, you know, this was the MISL essentially, you know, became sort of this offshoot of an indoor game that you had experienced a little bit with with the Roughnecks and the NASL. That really right. the NASL hadn't put a lot of effort into it was more more of a sideshow, and and here come yeah. professors Foreman and Tepper to kind of make a league out of it, and then winds up eating the NASL if you think about it uh, during the 1980s. Yeah, it was interesting because uh, you know, out, and out in this area, we had three teams within a 250 mile area that were just drawing unbelievable crowds from indoor soccer. Now, um, you know, to, uh, and. And that was St. Louis, that was Kansas City, and that was Wichita. So maybe about a 350-mile radius. Because when we had NASL indoor soccer here in Tulsa, we draw 5,000 a game. The fans kind of liked it. You know, it was a fun deal, but it was not a big deal. When the MISL came along, St. Louis playing that old barn over there uh, on the Highlands, uh, old parking lot there by Forest Park, they were drawing 18,000 a game. There was a while when they were out drawing the Blues who played in the same building. The Kansas City Comets and Kemper Arena was brand new back then. The Comets were drawing 14, 15, 16,000 a game. And then you go out to this barn of an arena north of Wichita. It wasn't even in the city limits, I don't think. And uh, Roy Turner, who had been the head coach, I think, of the, of the Dallas Tornado in the Outdoor League, uh, you know, and they were the Wichita Wings. And I, I want to tell you, I thought the nastiest place I ever had to go as a visiting broadcaster was when I did basketball for the University of Tulsa. We had to go to the Roundhouse in Wichita to take on Wichita State and those teams that uh, were so tough to play back then. But when I tell you, when the Steamers went to the Kansas Coliseum, which I think was out like on some stockyards or something, and they, they made it into an indoor soccer arena, that was the toughest Wow. I mean, you, you talk the, the toughest, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this crowd without, you know, saying the actual things they used to say to us as broadcasters and to our team. Uh, at times, it could be a kind, of, kind of vile, uh, and, uh, but I tell you what, they did an unbelievable job. Uh, they had this kid named Omar Gomez who scored goals like crazy. Uh, they had a, a kind of a midfield player named Ken Roteved who was as good as any indoor player I saw who was strong. And he, I, I think he was from the Netherlands or from Sweden something. And uh, this kid was strong. He was just an unbelievable indoor soccer player. But I'll tell you, um, Tim, what really made St. Louis go was the fact that other than the goalie, the famous Slobo Ilyevsky, Absolutely. Uh, who came over best from name, Yugoslavia? Best name ever in professional indoor soccer, Slobo. Yeah, Slobo. I mean, his name was Slobodan, and everybody called him Slobo, and he was fantastic. I mean, diving saves, you know, Amazing. jumping all over the place, making saves you couldn't believe, and the St. Louis fans loved him. But other than Slobo and one or two other guys on the team, Tim, they were pretty much all St. Louis kids. Uh, you know, Don Ebert was the striker. He was like the Phil Esposito of the MISL. He didn't look like the most skilled guy out there, but he'd get rebounds and put them in the net. He'd deflect the ball. He'd, he'd redirect. Uh, we had all these kids. We had Tony Bellinger, who, who uh, was an American kid. Ricky Davis, who played for the Cosmos toward the end of his career. He came and played. 
in St. Louis. Uh, Cacciatore, uh, there were three Cacciatore brothers. I think a couple of them played for the Steamers. They were from my neighborhood in South St. Louis. Uh, Timmy Walters was a St. Louis kid. All these guys, and the fans absolutely fell in love with them and fell in love with this team. Uh, we had an African-American kid on the team who was a great defender. Carl Rose was his name. And our fans just adored these guys because they knew them. They knew who they were. Uh, you know, and some of the St. Louis guys, Pat McBride, who is a very celebrated soccer player and coach out of St. Louis. He was the coach of the Steamers for a while. In fact, I remember one time we came back from a road trip that didn't go real well, and we were waiting for our bags uh, at the carousel in the St. Louis airport, and before any bags came out, Pat McBride came riding up the belt from down in the basement. I don't know how he did it. Obviously, this is before 9-11 when you could pull off something like this. Before any bags came out, Pat McBride came out of the belt and through the little door and onto the carousel and went around a couple of times, and the guys were laughing so hard they were on the floor. And, you know, that, that's just kind of funny stuff that used to happen. And, uh, you know, which you don't see anymore. But uh, those were great days with the St. Louis Steamers. And the thing for me was I was up in the press box on the east side of the rink at that time because that's where the Blues played. And I was sitting in the same seat that the unbelievably great hockey announcer, Dan Kelly, sat in when he did the St. Louis Blues games. And uh, two guys who were local coaches, one was Bob Burnett, who is still living, and uh, he was a superintendent of Afton Schools in St. Louis forever. He was my analyst. When he couldn't do the games, another great St. Louis soccer named Bob Kehoe, who died uh, recently, uh, Bobby would come in and, and do, be my analyst. My, my younger sister, Mary, was my stat guy uh, sitting next to me, and uh, we had a blast. But I'm, I'm, I'll never forget the first time I sat in that press box, and I'm thinking, I'm sitting in the same seat where Dan Kelly sits to do St. Louis Blues hockey games, and that was that was a wonderful time for me, and that was a great time for soccer in St. Louis. Well, uh, I, so maybe you can uh, one more soccer question, and then I want to use that as the segue to what what obviously blossomed into finally getting into, into the baseball thing, uh, and for and for good, arguably. Um, I, I saw that I sent you um, a clip, I think, from the 1983 uh, soccer ball, which uh, which Tulsa, Tulsa won, Roughnecks but, and Toronto Blizzard. Right, but you're but you're uh, you were also mentioning on that broadcast that uh, uh, that you had been doing some Team America broadcasts. So yeah, so how did that come out? Was that a, was that a Bud Sports thing? Yes, sir. And I was already doing some stuff for Bud Sports in 1983. The Washington Diplomats uh, had folded. I remember going to RFK Stadium and playing those guys, and they had this striker from, uh, I can't remember if he was England or some other part of Europe. His name was Paul Cannell. He was a really good goal scorer, and he was kind of the guy who uh, the Washington diplomats revolved around. I think, I think later, um, Johan Cruyff might have come over and played there for a while, and I think he eventually landed with the team in Detroit. But um, that year, Washington, D.C. did not have soccer in the NASL. The diplomats had gone away. I don't know if they moved or folded. I can't remember. But Anheuser-Busch decided to put the U.S. national team in training as a member of the North American Soccer League. They were called Team America. 
They played 16 games at RFK Stadium. They played 16 games on the road, just like any other team in the league. They were in the standings. Uh, I don't know if they were. I don't. I don't know how they they were paying those kids if they were the U.S. national team in training. I don't know if they were getting paid by the U.S. Soccer Federation or by the NASL or by Anheuser Busch. But um, I think that was another Denny Long concoction. So they basically put a team in Washington. I did the games with uh, Gordon Bradley who had coached the Cosmos, who had coached in Washington, and would also be, because uh, I know you saw the tape, he was my analyst in the booth for the NASL Soccer Bowl that year in Vancouver when Tulsa beat uh, the Toronto Blizzard 2 to nothing in front of 50,000 fans out there in the Dome Stadium in Vancouver. Uh, and so we did 16 home games. I would fly up to Washington on almost a weekly basis uh, stay in a hotel, take the Metro over to the stadium, do a Team America game. We would cover them like they were the hometown team. And uh, I don't remember, I don't think they made the playoffs, uh, you know, because they were a bunch of kids playing against more established, uh, you know, talent. I think Jeff Durgan, who had played for the Cosmos, was on that team. I don't have a roster sitting in front of me of, of Team America, but, uh, you know, they were kind of the cream of the crop, uh, and they were playing as an actual franchise in the North American Soccer League. That was the only year it happened, and that was in 1983. Yeah, that's a very interesting asterisk in the in the history of the NASL. We actually had um, uh, Rick Davis on uh, sometime last year, and he actually uh, says to this day he lost a friendship with, uh, with Jeff Durgan because Durgan chose to uh, play for his country, so to speak, uh, and Rick uh, decided that uh, he thought he wouldn't get any better exposure in playing time than being with the Cosmos, and um, apparently yeah. a rift that uh, continues to this day. But very wow. interesting, uh, yeah, very interesting story, uh, especially given the sort of rocky uh, road, I guess, of, of Americans' uh, uh, approach to World Cup soccer, and 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 you know now we're in a lull again, and hopefully we'll maybe get out of it. But very interesting story. Yeah, in fact, I, I'm just I'm just pulling up Team America on Wikipedia here, and and now some of these names are coming back to me. I mentioned Tony Bellinger who played uh, for the St. Louis Steamers. He was on that team as a defender. Arnie Mauser was a goalkeeper. Uh, Paul Hammond, who was a very good uh, young goalkeeper. Jeff Durgan was a defender on that team. Alan Merrick, who I remember from the Minnesota uh, Kicks. Perry Vanderbeck. Uh, I'm just kind of looking at some of the other names. Rudy Glenn was a recognizable midfielder. Tony Cressatelli was a top-notch American defender on that team. Chico Borja. My goodness, I haven't looked at this list in 30-some years. Uh, and then Greg Villa, I remember Greg Villa. He was a big physical forward. He was a St. Louis kid who played on that team. So uh, it looks like they won 10 games and lost 20 games that year. They, uh, they finished fourth in the Southern Division, and as I uh, guessed a moment ago, did not qualify for the playoffs. But uh, that was Team America back in 1983, and um, – uh, it looks like Alcatus Panagulius was the manager of that team, and uh, they wore the red, white, and blue, and that was a, a really interesting experience. Little did I know that I would go back to RFK Stadium 11 years later to do several World Cup soccer games, and little did I know that in 2006 I would come back to RFK Stadium and work two years of baseball there, my first two years with the Washington Nationals before they would open their new ballpark, Nationals Park, in 2008. All right. Well, so with the remaining time we have left, and you've been exceedingly generous uh, so far, and and it's it's a shame that you can't remember any of these old uh, uh, details. 
Uh, <laughs> um, you're, you're bringing stuff up for me, Tim, that I haven't thought about in 20 years, I'm telling you. Uh, and uh, sadly, that's kind of what we do on this little show. And uh, I, I think that's actually why it, uh, it starts to, it's starting to resonate. Um, so uh, I, we, I, you know, I appreciate it to no end. And I'm sure our audience will as well. But so, uh, so maybe you can explain with some elegance how your um, prodigious experience in this fledgling sport of soccer, right, both outdoor, indoor, uh, how that kind of set the table um, for other gigs and other exposure that ultimately got you, I think, to maybe yeah. your original dream, which was sort of this baseball thing, right? Because you're getting national well, national gigs yeah. and, and various sports, but I'm just curious as to how you ultimately sort of get there. It's more of, a, I guess, a broadcasting process question more than anything else. Well, and again, I have to go back to St. Louis, and I have to go back to Bud Sports, uh, because uh, uh, there was, I talked about Denny Long and how much he loved soccer, and that's why Anheuser Bush was so involved in soccer. Uh, there was a gentleman there who was a uh, uh, producer engineer for the Cardinals, and uh, his his name will come to me here shortly. It was, it's on the tip of my uh, it, it's on the tip of my tongue. It'll come to me. Uh, but he, they brought me so they brought me in to do MISL soccer, okay, for the St. Louis Steamers. And it's funny because back then, I, I was—I I always tried to be really versatile. I wanted to do baseball. That was, you know, that was always my thing, uh, that I wanted to do baseball. And I wanted to do the Cardinals. I mean, I grew up in St. Louis. If you grow up in New York, you, you dream of being the Yankee announcer someday. And, you know, those things just kind of work like that. Never thought that I would really get the chance to do that. Tom Barton, by the way, was the guy whose name I was trying to, to think of. Uh, Tom was over their production of Bud Sports. Well, Tom uh, met me at spring training one year when I was just down there hanging out. My sister worked for the Cardinals, and I went down to St. Petersburg one year. I'm just kind of hanging out and doing some reports back to my local TV sta- uh, radio station in Tulsa. And uh, we met, and I told him, he said, well, you're Judy's brother? Uh, Judy Barrett and my sister, pretty well known within baseball circles and with the Cardinals. And he says, uh, what are you doing down here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm doing some reports on, uh, you know, the Cardinals back to my radio station back in Tulsa. Uh, he said, well, what else do you do? I said, well, I do soccer, I do football, I do basketball, whatever, you name it, I, I can do it. I said, sort of boastingly, I guess. And he said, oh, really? So you, so you think you can do anything? I said, yeah, I think if I'm given my chance, I can do anything. He said, well, send me some tapes. So I did. A couple of months later, he gives me a call. And this is interesting, uh, Tim, because Anheuser-Busch, you have Budweiser, you have Bud Light, you have Michelob, you have Michelob Light, you know, you have all these different brands. And what Anheuser-Busch did, and I thought this was marketing genius back then, they would associate certain brands with certain sports. They would identify what their demographic audience was that they were shooting for, and they would market those different beers to through those different sports, and they would televise some of those sports. So it was really crazy. I'd get a call from Anheuser-Busch. I'd never forget this. They said, hey, we're doing a rugby match up in Chicago this weekend. Fly up to Chicago Friday. Find out as much about these teams as you can, and we're going to carry a rugby match on tape delay on Saturday. You're going to be the play-by-play guy. He said, have you ever done rugby before? And I said, no, but I've watched a lot of it on TV, which was probably one-third of a truthful statement. And I went up there. They gave me some analysts who knew all about the game, and it was sponsored by Michelob. Michelob was rugby. 
you know, and then they'd send me to St. Louis and I'd do bowling. Bowling was Bud Light, uh, or actually Budweiser. Soccer was Budweiser. They sent me to New Orleans. Uh, we did some pre-production and post-production on some speedboat races in New Orleans, and that was Bud Light. And so I got to do all these different sports through Anheuser-Busch because their different brands of beer were sponsoring these things. And then finally, after Tom Barton figured out that I wasn't lying about the fact that I was versatile, I could do different things, uh, Anheuser-Busch signed a cable network on the air in 1984 called the Sports Time Cable Network. It, had, it was in three cities. It was in St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Kansas City. The St. Louis region would get the Cardinal games, the Kansas City region would get the Royals, and the Cincinnati region would get the Reds. And uh, this network spawned several guys who would you know, later uh, be big league announcers. And, uh, and I was the Cardinal guy. They named me the Cardinal announcer. I worked with Mike Shannon. Jack Buck would come over for the middle three innings. Mike would go back to radio. And I'm sitting next to my boyhood idol, Jack Buck. Uh, Steve Fiziak, who's still an outstanding announcer with the Royals to this day and has done things for ESPN and Fox. Uh, he, was the can- he was one of the Kansas City guys. Uh, Ken Wilson longtime NHL great announcer who also did the Cardinals later and did the St. Louis Blues. He was their guy in Cincinnati. So that's how I got my big break to break into Major League Baseball in 1984. Problem was the network, and we were doing like 52 games, you know, because back then teams weren't doing that many home games. The owners still felt that televising home games would hurt the gate. Uh, So, you know, there were a limited number of home games on TV, so we did mostly road games. And the problem was that that network lost so much money. They lost the amount of money in one year that they were supposed to lose in three years, and Anheuser-Busch pulled the plug on the network, and I was one and done with my my, uh, Cardinal job in St. Louis. I got to do some games filling in for Ken Wilson and for Jack, and Mike Shannon on radio during the 1985 season. Uh, you know, but the writing was on the wall for me in St. Louis. I had to go somewhere else to do baseball. So in 86, I auditioned and got a job with the Texas Rangers. I did four years with them. In 1988, ESPN hired me away from USA Network, where this wonderful man named Jim Zrake uh, hired me to do U.S. Open Tennis, Masters Golf, college football, college basketball on USA Network. I even did some boxing for them, which I hated, but it was a paycheck and it was part of my job with them. And from that job, ESPN noticed me and hired me in 1988 to do football and basketball. And then after I lost the Rangers job at the end of the 89 season, ESPN added me to their major league mix when they picked up major league baseball in 1980. And uh, Norm Hitchkiss and I did the first ever regular season baseball game on ESPN opening day, 1990. The Baltimore Orioles beat the Kansas City Royals at Royal Stadium in Kansas City. Uh, Sam Horn, their big slugger, hit a couple of homers into the fountain, and uh, that was uh, off and running with ESPN baseball, which I did through the year uh, 2005. So uh, that's kind of how the whole baseball thing went. Uh, I eventually returned back to St. Louis and. 95 and worked there till 05 mainly on tv but but i was doing the games on free tv and most of the games were migrating to cable they already had a cable crew doing those games so i could see the writing on the wall uh so with one year left on my contract in st louis my agent alan sanders who's based in new york uh, he he got me an opportunity to audition with the washington nationals uh they flew me up i interviewed uh 
at Mid-Atlantic Sports Network in Baltimore. They're headquartered in the warehouse there out in right field at Camden Yards. They drove me down to RFK, back to RFK Stadium, uh, where I interviewed with the Nationals, and they hired me about. A, they hired me on March 1st, 2006, one month before the big league season started, and uh, that was 13 years ago. So I'm getting ready for my 14th year with the Nationals. All right, so I got two last questions for you, and uh, I promise we'll uh, put a nice exclamation point on it. This has been uh, very, very uh, intriguing, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Um, no, it's been fun. Okay, uh, well, uh, let, we'll see if these last two questions uh, fit that uh, category. Uh, so uh, this, uh, and I, you know, I originally heard you. Uh, this is not. Uh, I'm not trying to sort of get into the. Uh, the process of broadcasting, and uh, that's uh, that's for folks like Joel Godet with his play by play cast, where I heard you uh, a couple of months ago, which is a, an awesome podcast, by the way. If you haven't listened to it out there and you really want to get a sense of sort of the the business of broadcasting, especially in the realm of sports, but it leads me to this question, and it's it's clear in, in all of the uh, the uh, the stories that you're sort of recounting here. Uh, it is. Um, it is a peripatetic uh, life uh, that one chooses when one goes into the broadcasting space for broad- for sports, right? Because uh, it sounds like you're you're in many cases, and we kind of glossed over this, but you're doing multiple gigs simultaneously, if you will, right? This is not like you're going from one full time job to another per se, right? And 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 maybe right. that's a yeah. We didn't even talk about your you know, University of Oklahoma uh, uh, basketball uh, uh, coverage for you know for many years and and, and that kind of stuff. How does um, how, when did you sort of realize that that was sort of the, the mindset of how to sort of be successful in this uh, crazy business is that you got to kind of keep your eyes open for things, even though yeah. things are going well now, right? And you, ha- you know, and you have to know a lot about what you do. But, you know, I talked about that rugby experience. And then Hazard Bush sent me to San Diego one time for a triathlon. Um, you know, I didn't know much about those guys, but I always consider myself a quick learner. And I, I think... I, I, and the people at ESPN, I, I had a producer uh, at ESPN. His name was Jay Rothman. Uh, I, I did football and basketball with Jay. And he always told me that I had the best, I, we called them boards. I called them charts, whatever you call them. You know, your preparation boards for basketball and football. And Jay would always tell me that I had the best boards in the business. And he even told Dick Vitale that. And one night we were working together, Dickie V said, Bobby Carpenter, best, best boards in the business, baby. You know, and, uh, you know, we had fun with that. So I think I always had a sense, Tim, of how to prepare for events, what information was, uh, was necessary, what information was maybe not that important. Uh, but I, I think also because I got such an early start in my career working in TV in 1978, because that game I mentioned at Giant Stadium, when the Cosmos beat the Roughnecks, that was the first time I had ever appeared on television except for my final exam at UMKC, you know, several years before that. Uh, professionally. That was the first time I was ever on TV. So I, I got a good taste of television early in my career, and I think I got a sense of what it's like to have an expert analyst sitting next to you, because uh, a lot of radio guys who do radio for a long time, they can have a problem transitioning over to TV, because on radio, you're it, you know, and you might be going solo. Uh, and I did that, uh, but I always found that I really enjoyed working with analysts who were, first of all, good guys who didn't show up with an agenda, you know, that they were going to be the superstar. They didn't care about anybody else. Uh, I really I really fed off my analysts. 
because I've got I got to work with Billy Packer at CBS for some NCAA games. Dick Vitale, Bill Raftery, Larry Connolly, Jim Valvano, Jimmy Dykes, all these guys at ESPN uh, that were big influence on me. Kevin Kiley early in my football career at ESPN. And I think what happened, and I, my baseball list of guys I've gotten to work with, it starts with Hall of Famers like Joe Morgan and Jim Palmer and Bob Gibson and goes, you know, all the way through the list. It's just these unbelievable guys who I had watched play. But I think, Tim, I, I developed the sense of how to make them feel good and how to, how to make them feel that they were, you know, the, the main cog in the show, which on TV, uh, a lot of it is like that, where the analyst is the star, and I'm okay with that. I know play-by-play guys who did not have a good time with that because they wanted to be the show. I never wanted to be the show. I always wanted to be part of the team. And I, and I think I developed a sense of how to work with those guys. And uh, I, I, just, I just got a message through Twitter yesterday from Larry Sorensen, an ex-big league pitcher, who I probably worked three or four games with on ESPN like 20 years ago. And he just called me and said, hey, just wanted to send you a note. Um, you know, you're doing great. It was great working with you. And this is a guy that I worked with for maybe two months 20 years ago. You know, you just develop a relationship with these guys, and the list goes on and on and on. And, uh, you know, Al Roboski and Ricky Horton in St. Louis, FP, Don Sutton, Ray Knight, Rob Dibble, Tom Pachorek in Washington, all these guys uh, that become personal friends and lifelong friends. And, and I hope that I would think – I would hope that I have enough talent that I wouldn't be overmatched in any situation. But I've been told by people over the years that my preparation, but maybe most importantly, my ability to work with a lot of different analysts uh, was a big part of my deal. Because when I was at ESPN, Tim, for whatever reason, I never became one of their big stars. But they gave Oral Hershiser to me when he broke in. They gave me Buck Showalter. They gave me Digger Phelps. They gave me other guys that were brand-new analysts, and they said, hey, we'll give them to Carpenter because we know he'll take care of them. He's a team player, and he'll let them shine. And because of that, I've made lifelong friendships with all of those guys. You know, Rick Sutcliffe was another guy that hadn't been on TV much, and they gave him to me. And I take great pride when I look up on a Sunday night game or a big ESPN game, and I see those guys working. So I, th- I think that's a big part of it. It sounds really simple and really basic, but preparation and the ability to check your ego at the door and work with a lot of different people. I think it takes you a long way in my business. All right, a quick, a quick tangent. Uh, you want to tell the audience about uh, how you made a little cottage business for yourself with that preparation? Uh, with <laughs> well, in 1984, program. I'm doing the Cardinal games, and I have it in my cabinet here in my office, uh, sitting three feet away from me. I have a, a, a scorebook from Buck's Sporting Goods in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and in that scorebook from April of 1984 is my first major league game at Dodger Stadium. Willie McGee hit a couple of home runs. The Cardinals beat the Dodgers. I think it was 11-7, to 7, something like that. And uh, I'm working for a couple of months. I'm like, this scorebook just is not doing it for me. I wasn't aware of any other books out there. So I sat down in my hotel room somewhere on the road one night with two eight and a half by 11 pages in my ruler, and I laid out uh, what I thought a scorebook should look like. Uh, Whitey Herzog, who was managing the Cardinals back then, he gave me one of his blank uh, lineup sheets. I had never seen a scoreboard, a scorecard that had the bench guys and the available bullpen guys actually right there on the scorebook. 
So I decided to incorporate that into a regular scorebook configuration. You know, I tweaked it a lot over the years. And then I, so, and then I took it down to the local Jiffy print, had them put about 50 games worth of, of stuff in there, and I carried it around. It had a cardboard cover. It had this really bad plastic binding. And, you know, I'd be on the field somewhere, and I'd be down around the cage, and some play-by-play would walk up and say, hey, man, where'd you get that scorebook? I said, well, I designed it. I made it myself. And and a couple guys would say, well, how could I get one of those? I tore the back page of the book out, handed it to him. I said, here, take this down the street to your Jiffy print and have him make it. Well, in 1995, and this is 11 years after I designed the book, uh, somebody convinced me to, to go public with it, put it online. My wife and my daughter and I sat in my den one night, and we addressed, we, we printed up a little brochure. We addressed brochures to every single-A, double-A, and triple-A minor league baseball team in the country addressed to their play-by-play announcer. Uh, and we got, you know, we got some pretty good response back. It's, it's grown from then. Uh, there's now two different kinds of books, a big book for broadcast, a smaller book for fans that I developed in 1998 because Cardinal fans were asking me, hey, we want to keep track of Mark McGuire's home runs, but your scorebook's too big to bring to the ballpark. So I designed a smaller book. That happened in 98. So, uh, you know, this past year we sold uh, over 1,700 scorebooks, uh, you know, the most we've ever sold. And uh, I don't know, never going to get rich off it, but it probably paid a couple of semesters of my daughter's college tuition along the way, so that's not a bad thing. Uh, but it's it's been fun, Tim, because uh, – I've had orders from Japan, Europe, the British Isles, South America, Central America, Puerto Rico. Uh, I, I hear from a lot of fans in Canada, uh, fans of the Blue Jays who score games up there, old Expo fans. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's become a bit of a cottage injuries, uh, uh, you know, industry to a certain extent. And it's been a fun thing because uh, it's, it's probably gotten me some notoriety. But I've met baseball fans from all over the world, and that's always a good thing. All right, and the website for that is, for our fans? DC Scorebook. BCScorebook.com. Got that. All right. And here is the last question as we uh, uh, slide into home base. So uh, we just uh, had a, uh, an episode uh, last week about uh, sort of some of the, uh, the history of, uh, of D.C. And, uh, and baseball, which is surprisingly rich based from my sort of uh, yeah. novice sort of perspective. So as the uh, now longtime uh, uh, television and, and, and previous radio voice of, of uh, the Nationals in uh, in Washington, how aware are you of that heritage, and and do you feel, in some respects, almost like a care caretaker of uh, what is, is basically one of the earliest uh, pro uh, teams in 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 all of baseball? I mean, Washington and baseball have a, a huge intersection over over time. I wonder if you feel any sense of nostalgia and or a cure, uh, a caretaking, I guess, of the of the legacy of baseball in Washington D.C. Uh, as you broadcast yeah, their games, probably. Yeah, probably more take uh, caretaking than nostalgia because I didn't grow up there. Uh, but we've got a uh, you know I got a friend there, Phil Wood, who's uh, the local baseball historian uh, for all things baseball in D.C. In fact, every night when he signs off the air on the postgame show, he doesn't say adios; he says Eddie Yost. And so you know Eddie Yost is one of those guys, and uh, you know you have all the and, and it's been great. Uh, I, I've gotten to know Frank Howard a little bit over the years. Frank will show up at the ballpark, you know, once or twice a year, and it's fantastic to talk old school baseball with him. Uh, so yeah, maybe more of a caretaker, uh, you know. But I'm aware of Bucky Harris and of course Walter, the Big Train Johnson, and all those guys. Uh, you know, we've got those flags on the scoreboard up in right field. There's a blank flag up there, just waiting 
for the next World Series in Washington, D.C., because, you know, the ones up there are from the 20s and, you know, from that old era of baseball uh, when the Senators, you know, and Walter Johnson was the guy. Uh, you know, they won one, but uh, pretty soon it'll be 100 years. If, if the Nats don't do it soon. So, yeah, definitely caretaking some of that. Try to be aware of it. The Nationals are their own team. You know, uh, we have some fans who don't even want to hear about their days in Montreal. I'd say most fans don't. Some do. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of pride in D.C. now about the fact that after waiting 30-some years, uh, you know, they, uh, they have their own team. And, and, by the way, I never did radio in Washington. I want to pay respect to Charlie Slows, our radio guy, because Char- Charlie's been there from day one. And I'll never forget something he told me, uh, Tim. In 2005, the Nats had been on the road for the first week of the season. Then they came home, Levon Hernandez on the mound to face the Arizona Diamondbacks. And Charlie said as people came through the turnstiles, people were crying. They had tears in their eyes because baseball was coming back to Washington, D.C. So, uh, you know, that's something I try to remember because it means the world to our fans to have baseball back in the nation's capital. Well, I, I, uh, I, I'm not sure I got a tear in my eye, but I, I'm certainly uh, I'm humbled <laughs> that you would spend this much time with me uh, regaling your path to what you're doing now. And I uh, can't thank you enough, Bob Carpenter. This has been uh, an absolute uh, uh, blast, and I, I appreciate you uh, uh indulging me in some of the uh, sort of uh, memories of uh, your earliest days in your career and how to uh, you got to where you are. And, and for your sake, I hope that uh, in your uh, broadcast career with the uh, with the Nats, that you're able to fill in that uh, that last pennant there uh, as a as a nice signature. Yeah, we need we need to group. take that care of that. No, Tim, really, I, I enjoy talking sports and uh, it's been fun for me to take a step back. You know, 31 years ago is when that whole thing started with the Roughnecks. And, uh, you know, so it's been fun, and I appreciate you giving me the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope the folks uh, listening enjoyed as much as I did it uh, going through these things with you. Well, that was just a fascinating chat, and I, I can't thank Bob Carpenter enough for taking time out of his uh his uh, spring training preparation for his, what is it now? I think it's coming up on his 14th uh, year as being the uh, television uh, broadcaster for baseball's Washington Nationals. Uh, and I uh, thank Bob tremendously for uh, letting us drag him back, uh, kicking and screaming probably, uh, into some of his earliest days uh, as a, uh, a budding young professional broadcaster. Uh, and uh, allowing us to uh, go uh, into our little uh, annals here, our little nooks and crannies of forgotten sports history. Uh, I think that's kind of why we do these shows. It's a bit of an oral history uh, about uh, some of the people who were involved in uh, in these uh, franchises, in these leagues, in these uh, uh, sports that, uh, for whatever reasons, are no longer with us. And uh, if you have those memories and uh, want to reminisce or, or perhaps learn about some, some of the things that perhaps you forgot or didn't know about, uh, or maybe you're just part of a new generation of sports fan and uh, you kind of just woke up and realized that there was a whole sort of sort of history uh, behind maybe some of your favorite leagues or teams or, or even beforehand. Uh, and uh, that's kind of why we do these uh, these silly little shows. And they're not that silly, really, if you get down to it. Uh, we just love learning and unearthing all kinds of interesting stuff. And 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 Bob Carpenter certainly did not disappoint with some of those uh Steamers memories and Tulsa Roughnecks and NASL and I, it's just just amazing stuff. Uh, you heard Bob uh, allude to uh, his uh, amazing invention, frankly, for anybody in the sports broadcasting business who doesn't know about this. Well, shame on you. Uh, and if you consider yourself a uh, 
a, a budding sportscaster and, and need to sort of that sort of a cheat sheet, shall we say, to sort of uh, help you up your game on the air. Uh, or frankly, if you're a veteran broadcaster and just need a better way to sort of keep a handle on what's uh, transpiring in front of you so that you can uh, do your best uh, over the airwaves. Uh, it's Bob Carpenter's Baseball Scorebook. And uh, the address for that is bcscorebook.com. That's B is in Bob, C is in Carpenter. Get it, bcscorebook.com. That's where you can find out more information uh, about uh, Bob's uh, career, as well as the story behind the invention of the uh, the go-to scorebook for uh, anybody who considers themselves a pro uh, in uh, in pro baseball uh, uh, broadcasting. And again, it's uh, bcscorebook.com. And um, let's see, I want to say uh, thank you, of course, to uh, all of our great listeners. We appreciate all of your, uh, your input. Thank you for listening. Uh, as always, each and every week, make sure you go to our uh, website to find out more about the, this show, as well as uh, all the other uh, shows that we've done and all the sort of links and all those kinds of things to keep uh, abreast of what's going on with this little wacky program. And that's uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you can find all our social links. Like uh, at Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, there is a Facebook page uh, devoted to our little show. You can check us out there. Uh, you can click to uh, send us some email from our website. Of course, you can send that directly to us as well. That's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, it is also the place to sign up for our weekly newsletter. If you want to know what episodes are uh, coming out and what kinds of things we, we've got planned for you, you can sign up for that there too. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, and you know, by all means, please, please, please go and rate and review uh, our show, if you wouldn't mind, at uh, Apple iTunes, Apple Podcast, whatever they're calling it this week, anywhere, frankly, that you can uh, leave uh, uh, or rate uh, the show or leave a review. We uh, we can't thank you enough for doing that. It's got to be the least expensive way to show your love for this little show. And uh, it helps uh, other people find this program. And um, it uh, it does wonders, frankly. And uh, when other people discover the show, uh, we're uh, we're more uh, more than happy to serve them as we have you for all these many weeks uh, with further uh, great programs and uh, and topics. And uh, we can't wait to share with you uh, the uh, things that are coming up down the pike. A whole host of stuff and great interviews coming up, coming your way. But make sure you rate and review, will you? We uh, we couldn't appreciate that more. And last but not least, of course. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. He is the good doctor, Jerry Payne. Uh, and uh, we thank him and his friends at Podfly Productions for helping us with all of our editing and production needs. Uh, and you too can find out more about them and what they do in the world of podcasting at podfly.net. All right, I'm done. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. And until then, take care of yourselves and uh, stay warm and dry. Bye-bye. The MISL on ESPN has been brought to you by Budweiser. Beats wood age for that clean, crisp taste. This Bud's for you. This telecast has been a presentation of Anheuser-Busch Sports Productions through the facilities of ESPN.